And the message of Easter is not that we could summon up righteousness by working harder. It's that there was one who was perfect, who was perfectly righteous, who died in our place, who took on the shame of our sin that separates us from the creator. And he offers us his righteousness in return and offers us salvation. Welcome to a place for people that want to read more books and be in a book club, but don't really have time to do either. I do it for you. It's the 32nd Book Club podcast talking with Daniel Darling this week leading up to Easter. Couldn't think of a better way to just prepare your heart as he talks about in his book, the characters of Easter, the villains, heroes, cowards, and crooks who witnessed history's biggest miracle. Now, Daniel, this is such a big topic. What inspired you to write a book about this? Well, uh, you know, I have always enjoyed uh, character profiles. So when I was a in college, I would listen to um, guys like Chuck Swindoll that did these amazing character profiles of of biblical characters, and they were just so. I've always loved that. I've always loved reading biographies, and I think it's a great way, a fresh way to look at scripture. Um, I my first one was the characters of Christmas, and that was really well received. Where I you know talked about all the all these characters who are in our nativity scenes and are in, in the in the Christmas story, but who are these people? And I uh, want to do this approach with Easter. And, you know, it's interesting. We've memorialized these people, you know, think someone like Peter, John, we named cities after them and kids after them and hospitals and everything else. But they were just ordinary people in that first century who were caught up in the greatest story ever told. Mm. I think that isn't, yeah, the, the context and the profile is important because I think sometimes I don't know in my own life I, these care these characters become become caricatures, where we just don't, you know, we have we 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 read some things and then we have some preconceived notions and we've heard some uh, Sunday school stories and they kind of stay there. So I really appreciate that you kind of help kind of dig deeper a little bit and, and let them jump out of the page. Let's start here. I I uh, I've often identified uh, myself with Peter the failure. <laughs> you know, what is um. You know, what's something from the Easter story that, that really jumped out at you about Peter's role? So I think there's a few things to think through. Here's a guy, Peter was a young man when he followed Jesus. Uh, we forget what he gave up to follow Jesus. Uh, he was part of a really stable and uh, comfortable life, uh, part of a fishing business with uh, his brother and then with James and John there in Capernaum. Um, but he gave all that up to follow Jesus. What's interesting about Peter's life is just the way that Jesus pursued him. Uh, even the call to follow Jesus, it wasn't one call. We, we always think of that one moment um, when Jesus performs the miracle of, of the fish in the net where they fished all night and they're not successful. And Jesus says, why don't you try it on the other side? And, um, but they had had interactions before. In fact, it was Andrew who first met Jesus through following John the Baptist. And Andrew comes to Peter and says to him, we have found him. Now think about this. These are first century Jewish people who are probably very cynical about messianic claims they've seen false messiahs they know the history of israel israel's struggle for independence with the maccabees and then the romans come back and you know they they saw that roman flag high 
fly high above their, their land. And that was a symbol of oppression for him to say, we found the one just is extraordinary. There was something about Jesus that Andrew saw and he brings Peter to him and there's interactions. Jesus heals Peter's mother-in-law. They probably interact in Capernaum in some way, probably saw each other in the market, probably saw each other at the synagogue, but then there's the, the call to Peter to follow him and kind of a series of calls. And with Peter, you see the way Jesus shepherds him from a precocious young disciple who's all in through his failure uh, and then through to the Peter we see at Pentecost who is preaching to thousands of people. Um, and, you know, Peter before the cross was very self-sufficient. Hey, Lord, I got this. These guys, they're going to, they're going to just, these, these turkeys, they're going to, they're going to run and hide. Not me, man. I am, I'm with you. And he really felt he was, he relied on his own strength. He looked up every day and saw a courageous person and thinks, I thinks I got this, which is why he steals a, uh, a sword from a Roman soldier and, this unwieldy sword and he cuts off a guy's ear, you know, forgetting, Hey, Peter, you're not a soldier. You're a fisherman. What are you doing? Um, <laughs> this is why Peter gets caught denying the Lord. I really think the, one of the reasons he denied the Lord is he was trying to get into that inner thing and figure out and get information about what's happening to Jesus, trying to figure out what's going on. And again, Peter, you're not a Navy seal. You're not a CIA informant. You're a fisherman. And he's relying on his own strength. Everyone else is going to leave. I'm going to stay strong. And then when he denied the Lord, you know, and there's that scene from Luke where he catches a glimpse of the Lord as he's beaten, barely recognizable, and that sympathetic look from the Lord and Peter breaks down. And then, of course, on the beach, you see in John 21, Jesus performs the same miracle that he did at the first calling and saying, I still actually want you, Peter. Yes, you failed when I needed you, but I want you to be the one who's going to feed my people. So what we see from Peter is something for all of us that Peter had to be emptied of himself in order to be filled with spiritual power. Uh, And this is really available for all of us on this side of the resurrection that uh, we come to the cross. It breaks us of our strength and our power and God fills us with his Holy spirit and enables us to do things we didn't think we could do uh, and that we couldn't do in our own strength. So let's, let's go to John. Now I thought it was interested that you talk about the, the dinner that transformed him. Mm-hmm. And just, I, you know, I think it's, I always love seeing points, you know, whether it's in the Bible or in our lives too, or, or just everyone's like, you know, what was that point where everything changed? So talk about that a little bit. Yeah. So for John, you know, we think of Peter as the precocious one, as the Mm. one who was impulsive and he was, but really it was James and John, they they were called sons of thunder. (laughs) Um, And that was not a complimentary name Jesus gave them. Uh, Most of the time when Jesus gave people a new name, it was, he was seeing what they were going to be like Peter from Simon to Peter, Peter, the rock. Sons of Thunder was a pejorative. Um, And again, these were young men. Uh, John was a young man. He gave up his fishing business that was run by his father. So what's interesting about John, not only did John surrender to the call of God, so did his parents. 
his parents could have held him back and said, you're not doing that. That's not a, that's a risky choice. You need to stay here in our community and safe and carry on the family business. They were all in too. Um, and you actually see them, you know, his mother, particularly uh, in and around the disciples uh, with Jesus. John was very hot headed in the beginning. There's, there's a few occasions where we think of the time where he wanted to call down fire upon the Samaritans because uh, they weren't believing. And, John, in, in one sense, knew, knew that Jesus had the power of God. John knew that Jesus was the son of God. He wanted to employ all that. You know, he's probably thinking back to Elijah and the prophets of Baal. Let's just call down fire on these people. <laughs> and Jesus rebuked him for that. Another time, there's people doing gospel ministry over here. He doesn't like that because it's not part of their official program. And Jesus says, you know, if they're not against me they're with me they're they're doing good ministry he he wanted to control the the market share there and then of course it's john as and james and others are arguing about who's greatest in the kingdom of god he's thinking man if jesus is the the promised one the messiah and he's going to usher in his kingdom man i'm going to be you know i got an angle for can i be secretary of state can i be secretary <laughs> of defense can i be vice president i want to be on the right or the left and they actually employ their mom to ask jesus which is just <laughs> remarkable. Hey, mom, Jesus really likes you. You can imagine this. He likes you. Why don't you ask? So it's not me asking, right? Um, what's interesting to me is that John actually did get his wish to be on the side of Jesus, but it was in a different kind of power in a different kind of kingdom. At this last dinner that Jesus had with his disciples before he went to the cross, John is right there next to Jesus, but it's, it's a different kind of kingdom. Jesus is washing feet. Jesus is talking about death and resurrection. Jesus is talking about sacrifice. And so in some sense, he did get his wish, but it, this is the upside down nature of the kingdom that the first will be last and the last will be first, that the path to greatness is through service and through um, humility. John transformed from a son of thunder to an apostle of love. He was the one known for love in his gospel, in his letters. Um, and so this is the type of transformation that when people encounter Jesus and fully follow Jesus, what can happen in, in a life. So let's jump to a character that I think, even if you're not really super familiar with the Easter story, other than Jesus, you probably know about Judas. Uh, and you talk about in the book, you know, what does Judas tell us about Jesus? Well, there's, the, the, the thing about Judas that's really just fascinating to me is, and haunting, is Judas left everything to follow Jesus, just like the others. Um, he wasn't from Galilee. He was from Judea. Judea was a little bit more radical in terms of their attitude toward Rome. I mean, everybody despised Rome and was skeptical of Roman power, but there's a spectrum. And, and most people think his last name Iscariot refers to a town that's close to Hebron. They were much more radical. He, he left everything to follow Jesus. He saw that Jesus was the, um, was the, the, the Messiah, the anointed one. Uh, and just like everyone else, probably likely assumed that Jesus would bring in a political revolution right there, that the kingdom of God was right there. You know, they were reading the Old Testament texts. They couldn't understand the difference between the first and second ad advent. Neither would we have, by the way. Mm -hmm. um, 
we wouldn't have not have gotten it either. But it's just haunting to me that Judas was a gospel preacher. When Jesus sent out the disciples two by two to heal and preach the, king, the gospel of the kingdom of God, Judas was one of those people. There are likely people who listened to Judas preaching and saw him heal who believed in Jesus. Hmm. Judas was there when Jesus walked on water. Judas was there when he fed the multitudes with the little boy's lunch. He was there when he healed the sick and raised the dead. Uh, what I think there's a lot of people wonder have wondered through for, for 2000 years. Why did Judas flip? We don't know. One of the things I speculate though, is perhaps maybe at that, he was starting to hear Jesus talk about death and resurrection. He's seeing Jesus do all the wrong things. Like if you're going to lead a political revolution and build this movement, Jesus is doing the, the wrong things. He's subtracting followers instead of adding them, right? He's mm -hmm. turning them away. He's um, enraging the religious leaders. He's talking about the temple being destroyed. Uh, Jesus is saying that he's going to lay his life down. He's, <clears throat> Jesus is, um, you know, rebuking Peter. When Peter says, Lord, you know, let's not talk about you dying. We'll save you. And he says, get behind me, Satan. All this is going on in Judas's mind. And if he, Jesus is, is not the kind of Lord he wanted or imagined. And I think he, you see that scene with Mary of Bethany wasting that money in Judas's mind to pour that ointment on Jesus which if you're building a movement, you can't waste money on extravagant things. You got to be smart and you got to be lean. Judas is a treasure. They trusted him. Mm. So he was a trusted member. And Jesus welcomes that waste. And he says, she's preparing me for my burial. Again, he's doing all the wrong things. So I think for Judas and for a lot of people, Jesus disappointed him because he was the wrong kind of king, the wrong kind of savior, the wrong kind of uh, it was the wrong kind of kingdom. He was not there to fulfill Judas's political aspirations. He was there to usher in the, the spiritual kingdom of God to save his people from their sins. What's really sad about Judas is you see at the, at the end, he realizes what he's done. He's put to death the son of God, the guilt and the shame and the remorse. So he goes to the religious leaders who should have been able to point him to repentance and hope and faith. And all they can tell him is, well, it's not our problem. You know, they used mm. him to advance their goals. And then he, he obviously, um, in despondent, he committed suicide. But what's sad about Judas is that he could have found the one he betrayed could have taken on his sin and given him uh, forgiveness and freedom. Judas could have found that, you know, Peter denied the Lord but he found forgiveness because Jesus died even for that sin of denying Jesus. Judas never saw that. And that's really sad. And I think the message today is that all of us in some way have betrayed Jesus. We betrayed God with our lives and our, our sins, but Jesus offers forgiveness. He, he took that shame on himself and offers us forgiveness. So I think another interesting character in, in the story that you talk about is the, uh, Thomas. And, you know, a lot of us know him as doubting Thomas, but I love how you kind of go deeper and, and there's a lot more 
you say, you know, that we need to know him first, not as doubting him, but as a brave follower of Jesus who risked it all. Why is that? I, I hate that we call him doubting Thomas. Um, man, like it just doesn't capture the whole of who he was. First of all, he left everything to follow Jesus, which is a brave step. And if you think of, there are hundreds of followers of Jesus. And then he whittled it down to 12 who were his main people for this movement. Thomas was one of those. Um, we see Thomas speak three times in the gospels. He, he, he doesn't record a ton of what he says, but he's there obviously for all the miracles. He's there, there for uh, to hear Jesus teachings. He's a true believer in every sense. Thomas speaks, we see him speak three times. The first time Thomas speaks is when Lazarus is sick and word gets to Jesus that Lazarus is sick and they are several miles away, like three to four days journey. And the debate is, do we go to Bethany? Um, if we go there, it's not safe. Uh, Jesus enemies are there. But yet Jesus has to go because his friend Lazarus is there. And obviously Jesus was going to go and raise Lazarus from the dead and testify of who he is and his power as the son of God. So they're all debating this. The, should we go? It's not safe. I don't know. Thomas pipes up and says, let's go. Let's go die with Jesus. Hmm. I mean, he says, if this is what we need to do, I will go and I will die with Jesus. Uh, he's willing to suffer and die and give his life for Jesus. The second time we see him speak is in the, in the upper room. Jesus is talking about the future. And he says, I, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And where I go, you cannot go. Um, and Thomas asks a great question. He says, Lord, how can we know the way? In other words, I'm hearing what you're saying, Lord. How can we know the way? They're all sitting there thinking, this is not the kingdom. This is not what I thought it would be. I don't understand all this. And he asks, Lord, how can we know the way? And then, of course, Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. Provoked perhaps the most important statement in all of Scripture. How do you find the way to God? Thomas questions mm. provoke that. So Thomas was an inquirer. He was, a, he, want, he was an analytical. He wanted, you know, I'm willing to follow Jesus. Just show me what to do, which is a great spirit. Then the last time we see Thomas is after the resurrection. Uh, you got to imagine he's despondent in this moment. Everything he'd put his hopes on has, da has been dashed three years of his life. And if Thomas is a kind of an analytical person, a person who wants to count the cost before he makes decisions, which is a good instinct. You got to imagine he's thinking, I wasted my time. Did I bet on the wrong thing? Did I believe, have I been duped? How could, we let, how could we have let this happen? His friend, Jesus, has been brutally crucified in an unjust trial. He's thinking the world's upside down. Nothing's right. Nothing's fair. He's despondent. Well, Jesus appears to the disciples in the upper room the first time. They're up there. They're despondent. What's going on? They've heard echoes of the resurrection. Peter and John had actually gone and seen the empty tomb. The women had given them the witness. So they... They're starting to believe this, but they don't know what this means. And then Jesus appears to them, right? And says, I'm alive. And he eats some fish with them. 
to prove that he is a human being that eats fish. The fish is um, physical. He's physical. But there's something missing in that room. Thomas is not there, and the disciples know it. And the Bible says that in the week in between this one and the next time Jesus would see them, they went to Thomas and said, we have seen Jesus. This is really true. And he didn't believe. But I think it's so fascinating that and important that this community pulled Thomas out of his despair and dragged him to Jesus, which is a great witness that this is how we, 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 we need, why we need community. Our community brings us out of despair and can bring us to Jesus. So they gather again in that upper room a week later. And I, I wonder if they just thought, hey, this is where we've had our most meaningful times. We had the last supper with Jesus here. We Jesus appeared to us a week ago. Let's gather here again. And Jesus appears to them. And Thomas had said, unless I see the nail marks in his hand, I won't believe. I think Thomas was actually being hyperbolic and saying, guys, I don't believe any of it. Unless you can show me the nail marks, I'm not believing it. Mm. Well, Jesus shows shows him that. And his response is one of worship, which is the, really the only rightful response to seeing the risen Jesus. He says, my Lord and my God, which is a profound statement that Jesus is not just my teacher. He's just not my friend. He's my Lord. Mm. He has rightful rule over my whole life. And he's God. He's, he is God. And tradition says that Thomas went on to be a powerful evangelist in India and sowed the seeds of Christianity in India. So I think Thomas is to be commended. I think what we learn from him is that God is not scared by our questions, that we can bring our questions. God is not scared by our doubts. We can bring those to him. And ultimately, if we're honest, they will lead us to Jesus and they will lead us to worship. Hmm. Great perspective. I, I think another um, perspective, I think a lot of people look at um, these characters in the Easter story. And I don't know, sometimes I think I might, I might see myself in it too. And when you talk about the religious and the Easter Pharisees, and maybe just going through the motions, you know, what, what did you find looking at those stories? The interesting thing is, is Jesus always seems to be doing battle with religious leaders of the day. Um, sometimes it's easy for us to read the gospels and collapse all these groups into one, but there's, you know, there are different groups. The Sadducees mm -hmm. were kind of the elite religious leaders. They, uh, the high priests were members of the Sadducees. They were more accommodating to Roman power. They, uh, most of them made up the Roman I mean, the Jewish ruling council, the Sanhedrin, the 70 member ruling council, they had accommodated themselves to power. They were less resistant of Rome. They, they were, um, they didn't believe in the resurrection. They only believe in the first five books of the Bible. They didn't believe in the supernatural and the miracles or any of those things. They opposed Jesus for two reasons. One, he kept talking about resurrection, <laughs> but number two, and mostly he was stirring up the people in a way that I think they felt would threaten their delicate relationship between you know what they negotiated in terms of their power with Rome and and on all that and they they saw Jesus as a threat he's stirring up people in a way that wasn't healthy for them the pharisees represented most of the common people in in Israel uh they were unlike the sadducees they believed in the supernatural they believed in the whole uh 
you know, Old Testament scriptures, they were very concerned about spiritual renewal. They had read the prophets. They had understood the Jewish history. They know that, that God would uh, judge his people because they got into idolatry and because they stopped worshiping Yahweh. They were very concerned about moral and spiritual renewal. And they, they felt like that would usher in the kingdom of God. In many ways, Jesus was more theologically aligned with the Pharisees. Um, in fact, Jesus, a lot of people have this idea that Jesus came to, to get rid of the law, that he just came to kind of for this sort of laissez-faire Christianity. The truth is he, he said, I have not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. But his message to the Pharisees and why he rebuked them so often was that in their zeal for righteousness, which is a good zeal, they missed the pathway to, to righteousness. They thought that their self-righteousness and their... Hmm could lead them, can usher in the kingdom of God. And what Jesus message was like, um, you yourselves need, need a savior. It's not just those people out there. You yourself need a savior. I mean, Jesus had this conversation with Nicodemus who's the most devout of, of anyone in that time. And he said, even you need, need to be born again. Hmm. Uh, so they missed Jesus because they didn't realize their own need for regeneration, their own need for uh, salvation. Um, but I do suspect that most of the converts after the resurrection and at Pentecost were, were Pharisees who turned and saw Jesus as their savior and their Lord. And it would continue to be the Sadducees who would kind of oppose the early church in many ways. But in some ways, all of us are Pharisees. You know, all of us feel like our self-righteousness will earn us favor with God. Hmm. Uh, this is a predominant view today, whether you're on the left or the right or the middle, all of us approach Easter thinking that we are the good ones. Um, hmm. You just got to scroll social media all day to see people broadcasting their virtue. Hey, I'm on the good side. I'm not on the side of the bad people. And the message of Easter is not that we could summon up righteousness by working harder. It's that there was one who was perfect, who was perfectly righteous, who died in our place, who took on the shame of our sin that separates us from the creator and he offers us his righteousness in return and offers us salvation. This has all been so great. Uh, the book is called characters of Easter, Daniel Darling. I, I, you put this at the beginning of the book, but I kind of wanted to bookend all this after talking about all the characters and everything. You know, I, I love how you started with why do we need Easter? So if someone has just been listening to this and just wanted to find out more, you know, or maybe I think for me, sometimes I just think, you know, being a Christian my whole life, sometimes you just take it for granted. Yeah, that's what we do. Why do we need Easter? Well, we need Easter, particularly this year. I mean, first of all, for Christians, mm -hmm. Easter is the whole, it's the whole ballgame. It's everything. And as Paul says, if, if Christ is not risen again, religious people of all people should be most pitied. And that's true. Mm -hmm. A religion without a re resurrected Jesus is not worth living. The kind of idea of moral improvement, it just doesn't work. Um, humans need something outside of ourselves to save us. There's something permanently broken about the human condition that we need, we need saving from. Um, but we also, I think this year Easter is much more meaningful because we are living in the midst of, of brokenness that we see around us um, in the midst of a global pandemic where we're seeing death up close uh, tensions and violence and, and all these things. And the message of Easter is that there's a new world coming. Uh, I love that Easter's in the, in the spring. 
because mm. the spring is, you know, after a long, hard winter, you start to see the first signs of new growth, of, of new creation, of flowers starting to, to shoot up and, and the grass starting to grow and the sun coming out. And it's just this, this feeling that there's something new on the horizon. That is the message of Easter. The message of Easter is that there's something new coming, that Jesus Christ has come to renew and restore men's, uh, humans' souls to restore what is broken and what's wrong with the world. And he's coming to renew and restore the world. And I don't think anybody needs convincing that the world is broken. I don't think anyone needs convincing that the universe, the, the, the planet, the climate is broken, that the natural disasters, we have all this stuff. I don't think anyone needs convincing that personally humans have something about us that's broken. There's a lot of good that's in humans, but all of us, if we were honest, would admit that there's parts of ourselves that are dark parts that we hope no one would see. This is why self-help books really sell. And the message of Easter is just Jesus came to renew and restore all of that and that there's something new coming. So I think this year it's going to be more meaningful. It's also going to be more meaningful because churches are gathering a little bit more than they were last year. Mm -hmm. And there's something about that embodied gathering. Easter itself um, doesn't just celebrate spiritual renewal, but physical renewal. Jesus rose uh, bodily and those who are in him will also rise again one day. He'll renew and restore our bodies. Um, I also think it's an interesting juxtaposition with the position we're in, even right now with COVID that like the vaccines here, but it's not quite here. It's mm -hmm. we're kind of in the already not yet of the vaccine. Like it's here <laughs> and we can see hope on the horizon of, 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 of normalcy, but it's not quite here yet. And this is the world we live in as followers of Jesus that we see faint signs of renewal and restoration, but it's not quite here yet. And one day Jesus will come back to fully restore the world. If you've had some setbacks in your life, Ruth Sukup understands that. She had pretty much her whole life crash down around her. And as she built it back up, she learned what it meant to uh, be resilient and how to do things even when you're afraid. So she wrote a book for you. It's called Do It Scared. She'll be in the 30 Second Book Club podcast next week.